Welcome to Norse Mythology, the unofficial guide. It's unofficial because I'm neither a credentialed academic nor a time-traveling medieval Norse pagan, but I deal with this material directly from the sources, interpreted through the lens of the experts and their opinions. If you're looking for depth and detail in a simple and accessible way, then you're in the right place. Fjölvik for, fjölvik freistadak, fjölvik of reyndaregin. Quadan kemer sol all in sletta himen er thessa hever fenrir for it. Much have I traveled, much have I tried out, much have I tested the powers. From where will a sun come into the smooth heaven when Fenrir has destroyed this one? One of the more confusing aspects of Norse mythology is how we ought to understand the sun and moon as related to day and night. And the reason why it's confusing is because our modern, scientifically-oriented brains have a very clear idea of how these things work that doesn't exactly fit the way it's conceptualized in the mythology. Add to that the fact that we really don't have all that much in our sources about these topics, and also the fact that some of what we do have looks sort of contradictory, at least at face value, and you end up with a puzzle that a lot of people stay away from entirely— or talk about in a way that often misses the bigger picture. So let's start by breaking down our most extensive narrative that explains these topics. It involves a bunch of names that can be a little hard to keep straight at first, but we'll do the best we can. Of course, whenever we want anything explained, we have to turn to the Prose Edda, where our good buddy Snorri Sturluson, who is traditionally assumed to have written at least a bunch of it back in the 13th century, gives us a story about a Swedish king going by the name of Gangleri, learning about Norse mythology from three wizards calling themselves High, Just as High, and Third. In this part of that section, specifically in Gilvaginning 10, the wizard called High has just finished explaining how the gods created humans, and who the first children of Odin were. So, as we pick up the story, we land in a time that is not long after the creation of the world. High explains that out in Jotunheimr, there once lived a Jotun named either Norvi or Narvi. You might recall that the name Narvi shows up again later as a possible name for one of Loki's children with his wife Sigyn, but it's hard to tell whether or not this is supposed to be that same person. But this Narvi Jotun had a daughter who he named Nott, which is literally just the Old Norse word for night. Now, according to Nott's ancestry, High tells us, she was black and dark. Obviously, this statement is going to catch your attention, because our modern world is obsessed with race. So, it's worth pausing on it for a second to make sure we have a clear picture of what is and isn't being said here. The words the author uses here to describe not are inflections of the words svarter and dukkar, and these words do very clearly mean black and dark. Now, as it turns out, in Old West Norse literature, when a person is described as svarter, it happens in two contexts. The first, which is extremely rare, is to describe people of African descent. It is attested, but it's rare. The second, which is extremely common, is to describe Caucasian people with black hair. Crawford notes in his dissertation that the description of a non-supernatural person as being svarter appears to refer most commonly to that person's hair color, as opposed to their skin color, and that occurrences of this are fairly numerous in Old Norse literature. People of African descent are instead most commonly referred to as blor, which actually came to mean blue in most contexts. 
Crawford suggests that one possible reason for this could be that in an earlier stage of the language, both Svarter and Blor meant black in different contexts, and that Blor was chosen to describe dark-skinned people in order to avoid confusion with terminology that was being used to talk specifically about hair color. He also notes that associating blue with darker skin is not exclusively Scandinavian. Apparently, the Tuareg people of the Sahara refer to themselves as, quote, the blue men, and the common Arabic skin color can be described as either blue or green in Sudanese. These days, modern North Germanic languages like Icelandic and Norwegian have shifted over to using words derived from Svartr for describing people of African descent. And, of course, we can't forget that Crawford pins his analysis entirely on descriptions of non-supernatural beings, and Not is a Jotun woman. He doesn't provide any corresponding analysis of supernatural beings because they can often be depicted in ways outside of what you would normally find in nature. So, using their descriptions to try to figure out the nuances of what different color words actually used to mean could end up causing problems. With regard to the word Dukkar, dark, Old West Norse literature does use this word to describe both hair and skin color. However, in these cases, the people being described are typically of Northern European ancestry. So it doesn't seem likely that this is usually meant to imply dark skin as we would think of it today, but instead probably something more like maybe a tan from having to work outside, or maybe a somewhat darker shade of skin that would still be considered white by modern categorization, in contrast with the very pale skin that we often find in Northern Europe. So, what does all this really mean about not? What it means is that we can't take Snorri's phrasing here as meaning really anything definitively. When he mentions that not was black and dark because of her ancestry, it's highly unlikely that he's trying to make a statement about race, or that he's trying to claim all Jotnar have black skin. However, we also can't be 100% sure that he isn't trying to tell us that Nult in particular was supernaturally black and dark in some way. She is a Jotun after all, and is a personification of night. It could easily be that he imagined her as completely black in color, but it's just as likely that he conceptualized her as having a slightly darker shade of Caucasian skin because she wasn't born into nobility, and had potentially black hair. So, really, it's hard to know for sure what this means, and you are therefore free to imagine her however you want. Okay, so Not, the daughter of Narvi, is married to a man named Nagalfari, which is a name that shows up later in the Prosetta as the name for a ship that plays a role in Ragnarok. I'm hesitant to say that the personification of Night is really supposed to be married to the personification of a ship, but who knows why these names are being used here. Whatever's going on here, Not and Nagalfari have a son called Auther, which means prosperity. But this doesn't matter at all, because for some reason, Not stops being married to Nagalfari and gets married to a guy named Anar. Together, they have a daughter named Jorth, which means Earth, and who is also Thor's mother. But this doesn't matter either, because now she stops being married to Anar and gets married to someone named Dellinger, who is a sort of obscure member of the Asir clan. Together, they have a son named Dagr, which means day. So, with her first husband, Not, or Night, bears prosperity. With her second, she bears the mother of Thor. With her third, she bears the personification of day, who was, quote, in my own translation, lustrous and beautiful after his father. 
In this case, I'm translating lustrous and beautiful from Old Norse ljós and fagr, which mean more literally light and fair, but when taken in context of how they're used throughout Old West Norse literature as per Crawford's paper, ought to be thought of as synonymous for lustrous and beautiful. They don't necessarily imply any particular color, and they aren't inherently racial terms either. At this point, Odin steps in to give Nott and her son Dagar a purpose. He gives each of them a horse and a chariot and sets them up in the sky, where they have to ride around the earth every 24 hours. And this is why we have the phenomena of night and day. In the ancient Norse mindset, night is actually riding in front of day, which is kind of weird to think about since they're both riding around on opposite sides of a circle. So who's in front is sort of a weird thing to think about. But Note's horse is called Hrimfoxy, which means frost mane. Pulling a chariot, he of course has some kind of a bit in his mouth, which makes him drool. And as this drips over the earth, it becomes the origin of the dew that we see in the morning. Dogger's horse is called Skinfoxy, which means shining mane. And the reason for this is that his mane is literally shining and spreading light over all the sky and sea. So to just kind of condense everything down that we've talked about so far, Nott is a woman who personifies night, and her physical appearance reflects that in some way. She's the grandmother of Thor on his mother's side, but that's from a previous marriage. As of now, she's married to a god named Dellinger, and their son Dagr is a personification of day. His physical appearance reflects this as well, but he owes being lustrous and beautiful, which is contrasted here against black and dark, to his father's lineage. Now, here's the most important takeaway from the story so far. Night and day exist independently of the sun and the moon. The characteristics of night are darkness and dew, whereas the characteristic of day is light. And all that light we get in the daytime comes off of Skin Foxy's mane. Or at least, this is what we've been told so far. Let's continue. Once upon a time, there was another person called Mundelfari who had a son and daughter that were both incredibly fair and beautiful. We aren't told what types of beings these people are, whether they are Jotnar or humans or elves or what, but they do not appear to be Asir in Snorri's version of the story. The name of Mundalfari's son is Mani, which means moon, and the daughter's name is Sol, which means sun. Sol is also married to some guy named Glenner, which Rudolf Zemeck defines as meaning opening in the clouds, but I can't figure out how he got there. Anyway, something about this situation is perceived by the gods as being arrogant, whether that's having such beautiful children, or maybe more likely, naming them Moon and Sun. The way I read it, the gods have created a couple of objects called Moon and Sun, and the arrogance is found in Mundalfari naming his children after these objects. But the gods got angry at, quote, this arrogance, and decided as punishment to put these siblings up into the sky. Now, unlike Nolt and Dagr, who are personifications of the concepts of night and day, and who seem to be getting pulled in chariots around the earth by their horses, Moni and Sol instead have to drive the chariots that are going to be pulling the actual moon and sun, which are objects the gods have created. The sun, of course, was created from the glowing hot primordial sparks flying out of Muspel, and its chariot is to be driven by Sol, who is in command of two horses named Orvakr and Alsvider, which mean basically early awake and very quick. 
Snorri also notes here that the sun was created for the purpose of illuminating the realms, which is a thing that's hard to reconcile against his statement just a few sentences earlier that the light we get in the daytime comes from Skin Foxy's mane. But Orvakr and Alsvither are prone to getting very hot, so the gods put two bellows under these horses' shoulders to cool them off, which we are told is sometimes called Isarnkol, and which means something like iron chill. Moni, on the other hand, is driving around the moon and controls its waxing and waning. But he's not working alone. At some point, he appears to have kidnapped two kids to help him out. To be fair, the story doesn't actually say these kids were kidnapped explicitly, but it sort of reads that way. Their father is some guy named Vidfinner, which means Woodfin, where Finn is a reference to the Sami people who live in northern Scandinavia, and it makes me think maybe these characters are supposed to be human in this narrative. The kids are a son and daughter pair named Hyuki and Bill, and Moni takes them off the earth while they are traveling from a well and carrying a tub between the two of them that's hanging from a pole laid across their shoulders. Snorri mentions that these two children travel with the moon, quote, as can be seen from earth, end quote. It's not clear exactly what we see from Earth that constitutes seeing these children traveling with the moon, or how the presence of these children helps facilitate the waxing and waning of the moon. The best idea I can think of is that maybe the moon is perpetually being submerged and retrieved from their tub of water. Also worth noting is that the name Bill shows up in a list of goddesses in two other places in the Prose Edda, but Hyuki never shows up again. Scholars have been trying to figure out more information about these two for quite some time now, and have tried to relate them to various well-known folklore references, including things like The Man in the Moon, and even Jack and Jill fetching a pail of water. But to me, this all feels like very hazy, weird territory, so we're going to kind of stay away from it. More importantly, we now have a full breakdown of how night and day work. First, we have Nolt and Dagger personifications of night and day, being pulled around the earth every 24 hours by their horses, one of which drools dew all over the ground while it's dark, and is followed by the other one, who shines light from his mane. Next, we have Mani and Sol, whose father had the audacity to name them after the moon and sun. As a result, the gods turn them into chariot drivers that have to drag the actual moon and sun around in the sky, and Mani has two children along for the ride, who conceivably begin life as these weird foreigners in the Norse mindset, and somehow help with the waxing and waning of the moon. So what we have here is a system where the concepts of night and day exist sort of independently of the objects called the moon and the sun. On the one hand, this makes a lot of sense, given how we can often see the moon in the daytime. But on the other hand, it's a little weird, given how both the sun and skin foxy are said to be the originators of daylight. A lot of this also falls relatively well in line with Vafthrudnismal stanzas 22 through 25, where we get a higher level description of what could easily be a similar story. It has a lot fewer details, but it does mention Mundulfari and Dellinger and some little things like that. Our story isn't over, though. Because now Gangleri, the Swedish king learning about all of this from his new wizard friends, mentions that the sun sure seems to move fast across the sky. And gosh, you know, she probably wouldn't be able to go any faster if she was running away from something for dear life. 
And I couldn't have come up with a more perfect setup to the next part of this story if I'd written Gilveginning myself, Hai should have said, and begins explaining to Gangleri that yes, in fact, Sol is in fear for her life, because there are actually two wolves chasing the sun and the moon around the sky. The one going after the sun is called Skull, and he will eventually catch her. The one going after the moon is called Hati Hrodvitnison, and he will eventually catch the moon as well. Sadly, we don't get a surname or a patronym for Skull. But where did these wolves come from? Gongleri wants to know. Hai explains that there's a certain Gigur, a Jotunar troll woman, living east of Midgarther in a place called Ironwood, alongside a bunch of other troll women called basically Ironwood dwellers. But this particular one, whose name we aren't told, is an old one, and she breeds a bunch of Jotnar in the shape of wolves as her sons, and these two wolves, Skol and Hati, come from that group. This group is also prophesied to produce a particularly mighty wolf called Monogarmer, who will, quote, fill himself with the lifeblood of everyone that dies, and he will swallow heavenly bodies and spatter heaven and all the skies with blood. As a result, the sun will lose its shine, and winds will then be violent and will rage to and fro, end quote. Neither Snorri nor I seem to know exactly how to square this idea of Monogarmer swallowing heavenly bodies and causing the sun to lose its shine with what we've just been told about how Skull and Hati will be the ones to catch the sun and the moon. But I'll come back to this. Fortunately, there are actually a lot more interesting things we can say about these wolves than there are about Huki and Bill. As evidence for his claims, Snorri cites Voluspa stanzas 39 and 40, quote, in the east sat the old woman in Ironwood, and gave birth there to Fenrir's offspring. One of them in trollish shape shall be snatcher of the moon. It gluts itself on doomed men's lives, reddens the gods' dwellings with crimson blood. Sunshine becomes black all the next summers, weather all vicious. Do you want to know more? And what? End quote. Here we get an extra detail that these wolves being raised in Ironwood are specifically Fenrir's offspring as well as a clarification that this old troll woman is not only raising these wolves as her children, but giving birth to them. There is, of course, one Yelton woman named in our sources who has given birth to a wolf, and that is, of course, Angerboda. Her wolf son, however, was Fenrir himself, so to imagine that Angerboda might be the one also giving birth to her own son's offspring is kind of gross. One interesting little difference, though, between Snorri's account and the stanzas he quotes as a source is that whereas Snorri says this woman is breeding Jotnar in wolfish shape, Voluspa mentions that the Snatcher of the Moon will be one of Fenrir's offspring, so a wolf, but in trollish shape. So we get some reversed phrasing here. I don't think we need to try and read very far into this, though. It's unlikely this is supposed to mean the wolves are thought to look like anything other than wolves. My best guess is that Voluspa's comment about trollish shape here is just meant to convey to the audience that these wolves are supposed to be extra scary, monstrous wolves. I may have mentioned before that a troll in Norse mythology is not a specific species of creature, but it's just a word you can use for pretty much any kind of a scary or monstrous being. It's more like a boogeyman in that sense. But let's start with Hati Hrothvitnason the one chasing the moon. Hati means something like the one who hates, or hater, and Hrothvitnison, of course, is a patronym, meaning son of Hrothvitnir. But wait a second, weren't we just told that Hati is the offspring of Fenrir? 
So who's this Hrothvitnir guy? Well, as it turns out, Hrothvitnir means fame wolf. So Hati's patronym effectively means son of the famous wolf, which could easily be a reference to Fenrir already. But if we really wanted extra confirmation on this, we could also look at Locusena stanza 39, wherein Tyr refers to Loki's wolf son by the name Hrothersvitnir, which is, for all intents and purposes, exactly the same as Hrothvitnir. It's just inflected a little differently. For all these reasons, most scholars tend to agree that Hrothvitnir, the fame wolf, is just another name for Fenrir. So it actually lines up perfectly well with what we've already been told about these wolves being Fenrir's offspring. But this makes the fact that Skoll doesn't get a patronym even weirder. The name Skoll looks like it might mean something like treachery or mockery, but that doesn't seem to give us a whole lot of usable information, at least nothing I'm smart enough to figure out. However, Vafthusnismal stanza 47 explains that Fenrir himself will be the one to destroy the sun, and of course Snorri repeats that in other places. But he also tells us here in this part of the story that Skoll is the wolf who will catch the sun. So with a lack of any patronym for Skoll, and with Snorri telling us both he and Fenrir will be the catchers of the sun, scholars like Zemek and Larrington often hesitantly comment that Skoll and Fenrir might actually be the same wolf but they're hesitant for a pretty obvious reason, which is that Fenrir is also supposed to be tied up on an island called Lingvi with a sword stuck in his mouth, which would sure make it hard for him to be chasing the sun across the sky all day every day. I've said a million times that we can't expect there to be a consistent canon among these stories, but if a theory has a demonstrable contradiction, we should at least be careful about it. Snorri is apparently aware of a third wolf name here, Monogarmer, but he doesn't seem to be completely sure what to do with it. He mentions it in a way that reads like he's talking about a third wolf bred from Fenrir's kind, but stops short of actually claiming Monogarmer isn't just another name for one of the previously mentioned wolves. John Lindau notes that Garmer, which means dog, is actually used pretty frequently in poetic kennings to imply a destroyer. In that sense, Monogarmer has the structure of a kenning just designed to mean destroyer of the moon. So maybe it's possible that this is really just another name for Hati. It's not clear exactly where Snorri got this name. One other thing worth talking about here is the fact that Snorri's explanation of Sol and Mani driving around these chariots for objects made out of sparks seems to miss out on how important the idea of a divine sun and moon must have been in different times and places in the Norse period, and in broader ancient Germanic religion. Take stanza 5 from Voluspa, for example, describing conditions in early times when the gods were still in process of organizing things. Quote, From the south, sun, companion of the moon, threw her right hand round the sky's edge. Sun did not know where she had her hall. The stars did not know where they had their stations. The moon did not know what might he had." End quote. This reads more like the sun and moon being independently powerful beings, as opposed to just two people the gods punished for the arrogance of their names, dragging around bright objects and chariots. This mysterious might of the moon might also be referred to again in Havamal stanza 137. Quote, I advise you, Lord Fafnir, to take this advice. It will be useful if you learn it. Do you good if you have it. Where you drink ale, choose yourself Earth's power. 
For earth soaks up drunkenness, and fire works against sickness, oak against constipation, an ear of corn against witchcraft, the hall against household strife. For hatred, the moon should be invoked, earthworms for inflamed parts, and runes against evil, land must take up the flood." End quote. In this stanza, Odin appears to be delivering something that seems like a high-level, numinous, medicinal handbook. There's a bit of magic in there, such as using runes against evil and corn against witchcraft, but there's also a couple of ideas that sort of make sense in light of more modern medicine, such as the idea of heat working against sickness. What's even more interesting, though, is this idea of invoking the moon against hatred. It feels a lot like it could have something to do with the notion of a wolf named Hater chasing the moon around the sky. But also, the word translated to hate in this context is heft, which can be synonymous with hate, but can also be used to mean rage, anger, and spite, and can be used when talking about feuds and vendettas between people. So the moon seems to have some power against these kinds of things, apart from its more obvious power of marking the times and seasons for the ancient Norse. Another important call-out is that, outside of Snorri's writings, the ancient poetry never makes any kind of clear distinction between the beings called Sol and Mani versus the glowing round objects. Whenever the sun and moon are discussed, it's with these names, and in a context that talks about them as both powerful personified beings and simultaneously as things like a ball or a wheel. In Grimnismal 37, for example, the horses must do the following, quote, Orvakr ok Alsvider, Thayer skulu up svangir soldraga. Literally, Orvakr and Alsvider, the slender ones, must pull soul up from there, end quote. In this context, it sounds like the horses are pulling a single being named Sol in a chariot, as opposed to the distinction Snorri makes between the driver and the passenger object. So one thing we should probably do, as we start trying to hone in on the proper way to interpret these things from an ancient Norse mindset, is to stop saying phrases like the sun and the moon, and to instead start referring to them as capital S Sun and capital M Moon, or maybe even better, just by their names, Sol and Mani. Sol, in particular, is a fascinating character. Zemek notes that the idea of the Sun riding in a chariot is really old in Scandinavia. He points as an example to the Trundholm chariot, which is a Bronze Age sculpture of a horse pulling a big golden wheel in a chariot, and is dated to about 1400 BC by the National Museum of Denmark. But despite the apparent age of the concept, he mentions that our evidence of a Germanic sun goddess is actually a little scarce. As I mentioned, Snorri's version doesn't exactly cast Sol as a powerful divine figure, so we have to extrapolate the idea of a more important sun goddess from other references. For example, Snorri mentions in Gilvigening 35 that, quote, Sol and Bill are reckoned among the Osinjur. And then in Skaldskapermal 75, the name Sol casually shows up again in a list of goddesses. But there are some better examples from the Poetic Edda, and these I'll give you in my own translation, just to avoid phrases like the sun and whatnot where that phrasing is a little bit of an embellishment and doesn't exactly match the way the source text treats the concept. The first one is from Grimnismal 38, quote, Svalin he's called. He stands before Sol, 
a shield for the shining goddess. Mountain and surf, I know, must be burned if he fell away from there. End quote. Svalen, by the way, looks like it's related to the adjective svaler, which means cool or cold. So svalen probably means something like the cool one. And then we also have Vathrudnismal 46 and 47. Quote, Odin said, Much I traveled, much I trialed, much I tested the powers. From where comes soul to the flat heaven once Fenrir has made his way through this one? Vathrudnir said, Alfrodul will bear a daughter before Fenrir gets to her. She shall ride, once the powers die, the maiden upon her mother's pathways. End quote. In this passage, a character called Alfrodul, which is clearly another name for Sol, bears a daughter who takes on the job of our current son after her mother is destroyed by Fenrir. I say this is clearly another name for Sol because Alfrodul means, in an extremely literal sense, Elf Skywheel. That name is also fun for the extra reason that it continues to add to the ever-present mystery of what exactly an elf is. One last example illustrating the sun as a goddess in Germanic tradition doesn't even come from the Norse corpus. It's usually called the Second Merseburg Charm, and it comes from medieval Germany. This very brief text mentions the name Sunna, which is of course related to sun, in a list of goddesses alongside its more southerly versions of Odin and Baldr. Here, Sunna is just mentioned in passing, alongside a companion sister named Synthgunt, who is even more obscure. Zemek points out that there have been various attempts to understand what Synthgunt's name might mean, especially given that she shows up as a companion to the sun here. And those ideas include things like the moon or a star, but Zemek doesn't like the moon explanations because Germanic culture broadly considers the moon to be masculine, as we've already seen, and I agree with him on that point. But he doesn't pick an explanation he likes better. The star interpretation actually comes from Jacob Grimm, and I suppose it's as good a random shot in the dark as anything else for explaining a sister companion of the sun. In any case, even though the divine figure of the sun appears to be really old and continuous, we don't have much evidence that would point us toward thinking there was much of a cult of soul worship in the Norse period, for whatever reason, at least according to Zemek. But whoever the companion of soul is supposed to be, and whether she is driving a horse or being pulled in a chariot, and whether or not Mani is a kidnapper, and whichever wolf might be the same as another wolf, and whether or not any given wolf will eventually catch the sun or moon, I hope that by now, you're at least a little less confused about how this part of the story goes. And if so, don't forget to join me again next time, where we'll slowly work towards being a little less confused about things together on Norse Mythology, The Unofficial Guide. Sources for this episode include Dictionary of Northern Mythology by Rudolf Zemeck, 2007. Norse Mythology, A Guide to Gods, Heroes, Rituals, and Beliefs by John Lindau, 2001. The Historical Development of Basic Color Terms in Old Norse Icelandic by Jackson Crawford, 2014. The Poetic Edda, translated by Caroline Larrington, 2014. And The Prose Edda, translated by Anthony Falks, 1995.